Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Here we go with you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Glad to have you along. Middle of the week, Wednesday afternoon, the 10th of June. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad. Tell you about the ceasefire text line coming up in just a little while. But today, we have a leadoff hitter, Mike Rooney from ESPN, former college baseball coach. And I don't know that I know a person on planet Earth that loves college baseball more than Mike Rooney. I've had the pleasure of working with him on uh, on some television broadcasts, the SEC Network uh, e- and ESPN. And today is draft day, so we've got the uh, first round of the draft and the competitive ba- round or the competitive balance picks, sandwich round picks as they're commonly referred to, coming up tonight. And who better to talk about that than Mike Rooney? Runes, what's up, my man? Yeah, how we doing? It's a good day, right? It feels good to have some baseball something to talk about. Let's go. Yeah, I, I like it. I mean, it, it's hard to talk college baseball right now without having some sadness knowing that uh, the College World Series should begin uh, be beginning in, uh, what, two, three days. But, uh, alas, we do not have that. So uh, I guess this is as good as any. I, I really want to focus on the uh, the Mississippi kids, uh, especially the ones that might hear their names called tonight. A couple of guys from Mississippi State that are currently on the team and a couple of guys that are in uh, Chris Lamonis' recruiting class uh, could very well hear their name called. Uh, what do you think about when you think about Jordan Westberg? Let's start there. Yeah, I think the the thing about Jordan Westberg is you're you're if, you know the teams that like him, you're buying a really big physical athlete that has bucket shortstop so far. And you know, it's it's I think it's easy maybe to talk yourself into he can't stay at shortstop, but he has been there so far. So, you know, he's a really aggressive kid. The work ethic's off the charts. And he just has some size and athleticism that you can't um, teach. And so if he is able to stay at shortstop, I mean, I'm not putting a Troy Tulowitzki comp on him, but it is that genre of really physical, potentially offensive middle infielder. He may not be the only guy from Mississippi State that ends up uh, ends up going in the first round, and then obviously you've got the um, uh, you know the possibility of some incoming guys. Who else stands out to you? Well, I mean, Justin Foscue is going to be really interesting today because he's got as much helium as anybody. Um, you know, it's it's the offensive second baseman profile. He's one of those guys. The analytics teams, which is almost everybody now, he's one of their darlings. When you think about this, he's been a performer for three years. This year he had 15 walks and three strikeouts. He shows you power. Again, you think he could play third. He could probably play a lot of different places. But the analytics teams really like him. It's the college bat. That tends to be kind of a a safe place for teams. that they, They take a lot of comfort in that. They feel like, hey, the kid's proven himself in the SEC. So Justin Foscue 
to me, is going to be one of the most fascinating names. I mean, he could go as early as, like, you know, in the teens. He could be a sandwich pick. It's going to be fascinating. I've seen a lot of people in mock draft projections that have him going to the Mets, which, which kind of brings up an interesting question, I think. You know, when we, when we start talking about the NFL draft, we're talking about needs and whether or not guys will be able to, you know, plug in and play right away. Obviously, baseball is a different deal, and you've got to work your way through the system. So, so what is it that causes certain teams to lock on in on certain guys? I mean, if the Mets take Justin Foscue at 19, is it because they are projecting him as a second baseman six years down the line, or is it a different approach? Yeah, I think it's more, you know, the MLBR draft, the players are the furthest away from the big leagues, you know, from the, from the actual end product. And so I think it really comes down to organizational scouting preferences. You know, some teams prefer the high school kid with big tools that you can dream on. Some teams prefer the safety of a college player. It's almost never need in the MLB draft. Um, hey, and honestly, some of it can do with recent draft history. If you're a team that um, has taken some high school kids recently and gotten burned and you're a scouting director that's feeling like, um, man, I'm not in a great place here, uh, maybe you go for a little bit safer pick just to, to you know, placate that or you know, work off of what you've done in the past. And then the other thing is I, most often in baseball what we see is you take the best player available defined by your system because – it's not just about the player you're getting, but it's the player that you might end up trading if you're in a pennant race. You know, these, these first-round picks carry a lot of cachet, and maybe that's the, the token that, that gets you a, a big reliever you need for a stretch run. Mike Rooney on your radio. He's a college baseball analyst with ESPN on the first weekend of the tournament. He's the guy that sits in the, uh, in the studio alongside Matt Schick, and they talk about every single game that is, uh, is going on. I want to ask you about a couple of Ole Miss guys that nobody has projected as first-round picks but could be part of this five-round draft. Anthony Servidio, smaller sample size this year, obviously with the shortened season, but he showed some power that he had not shown previously. Uh, generally thought to be a pretty good defender. Is he a top five round pick in your mind? Yeah, well, uh, there's no question. I think he's probably, uh, there's, to me, Anthony Servidio, there's no way he gets to the third round. He's, you know, he's too athletic, hmm. left handed hitter, showed the power that you mentioned. You know, and you think about MLB teams with all this shifting and, um, you know, the, the way they're struggling lineups. Their video is perfect for that. You know, it's, he's really a, a dynamic athlete that's played everywhere at Old Miss. And so I think teams are going to find him really attractive. I could see him going tonight in the first 37 picks, but for sure I don't see him seeing the third round. Um, you know, Tyler Keenan's interesting to me for Old Miss because he has showed tremendous power. Um, he's been an excellent college player, also a left-handed hitter. But I think there's, you know, in the pro game, is he really a third baseman? Is he going to be a first baseman? You know, I think Tyler Keenan, it's really going to boil down to his signability. If he slips to the third or fourth round, you know, is he willing to take a discount to go out and play? Or is he thinking maybe I come back to Ole Miss for one more year? I, Tyler Keenan, I, it probably leans more towards him signing, but I could also see him coming back. I think he's really right on that borderline. How much is signability going to factor into this draft? It's always a big deal, but is it even a bigger deal when there are only five rounds? There are a limited number of suggest, uh, 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 limited number of, of opportunities for teams to bring players in. So, 
are, are those conversations of whether or not you're going to sign for a certain amount of money more intense this year than maybe even in years past? No question. I think it's um, you know it's the ultimate tiebreaker. I think you will see a lot of teams that they will really be focused on their first three picks, and then they will think of rounds four and five as kind of hey, can we get a good player at a at a at a uh, a discount? And so I, I think signability is going to be a huge factor in that. Uh, you know, teams obviously have had zero revenue this year, so that's you know some teams are in better shape than others. So, yeah, I think once you get through the third round, um, signability will be – you will see some players taken in the fourth and fifth round that you think, man, I know that kid's not a better player than X, but he was probably way more signable than player X. Mike, just a couple of minutes left. We, we see arms in the SEC all the time, and then and, – and maybe you know self included we we quickly throw throw around that uh it's a future first round pick and it doesn't always work out but when you look at some of these projections Asa Lacey in the first round Emerson Hancock in the first round uh Garrett Crochet the lefty from Tennessee in the first round Cole Wilcox you know a second Georgia guy in the first round are all of these in your mind legitimate future big league pitchers yeah, I mean, you know, obviously pitchers have to stay healthy. There's no question about it. But, hey, I would throw Tanner Burns in there. I think it's a very That's true pick to be a big leaguer. JT Ginn, if, you know, obviously he's coming off of Tommy John, but, you know, there's about an 80% success rate in Tommy John. So, yeah, I mean, I just, there's just, as you know, there's no, if you're a weekend starter in the SEC, there's no place to hide, right? Like, it's 10 weekends of, either bring your A game or get your brain speed in. And so, um, obviously, these kids have elite stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think it's – I mean, the Georgia thing is amazing to me, right? Like Cole Wilcox and Emerson Hancock, they had two first-rounders in their weekend rotation. So, um, it is a really strong year in the SEC for arms. It's not that unusual. Um, it, it, it just It's one of the things that makes the league so, so fun. Last thing for you, Mike. Uh, you've got a little Arizona State Sun Devil in your blood, despite being a Notre Dame guy. You spent all that time on, on Pat Murphy's staff there. Uh, there are a lot of people in this part of the country that have never seen Spencer Torkelson. They're locked in on SEC baseball. How good is this guy to potentially be the first ever first baseman taken with the number one overall pick? Yeah, I, he's a stud. I mean, think about this. He's 6'1", 225, and he's got some bounce in him. He, to me, he reminds me of a Division One college free safety in football. Um, led the country in home runs with 25 as a true freshman. You know, he, he's just so strong, electric speed, and he can really hit. You know, he's, he's been seeing 3-1 change-ups since he's been a freshman, so he could play left field. He's a really good athlete. He's just not a great defender. Uh, whatever reason, those two things aren't connected. But, I mean, it's a special kid. Yeah, he is, he's the clear number one for me. Runes, you are the best. It's great talking to you, my friend. Enjoy the uh, draft tonight and hope to talk to you soon. You got it, Richard. Thanks, man. That is Mike Rooney, college baseball analyst with ESPN and the SEC Network. We'll be right back. So the Major League Baseball draft begins at 6 o'clock tonight. First round and the competitive balance picks. The Houston Astros do not have a pick, and so they are slotted at number 30 and then says they had to forfeit their pick. 
Uh, does that make you feel better? So you'll get 29 first-round picks, and then they'll go out through 37. So four additional, or excuse me, eight additional picks. Um, hey guys, what's up? Happy Wednesday. I don't know if it's happy. Oh yeah, why is that? SEC Media Days was canceled. Well, canceled. Canceled in the sense that we're not going to Atlanta in July. But there's virtual media days. I mean, we can have a big thousand-person Zoom call. Not the same. It isn't the same. No. No, it is not the same. I do think... I haven't even had a chance to uh, share this with you guys yet. I do think we're going to have a uh, kind of a fun alternative Ooh, to okay. no SEC football media days. I, uh, media days of uh, kind of our own making, if you will. But I can't tell you any more yet. I can tell Wait, you what? more yet. I just can't make any kind of I mean, we work yet. here. I, yes, I understand that. But we're also talking to a state with a population of 3 million people. And we're on in all 82 counties in Mississippi. I'm just not ready to make a full-on announcement yet, but I think we've got some exciting stuff coming. I feel like this is something that I should have included on, but that's okay. Well, if I had known this more than about an hour and a half ago and it had a chance to talk to you about it, you would have been clued in on it. They're, they make these things. They're, they're amazing so they devices. They called him, Porky. They um, called him. They didn't call us. Of course. They didn't get our thoughts. Yeah, they make these devices. I don't know if you have one. They're kind of new. They're called cell phones. And what you can do with them... This is, is the part where Michael Borky is going to talk to me about being connected and responding <laughs> to messages and sending messages. This hey, is the part before that's six, rich. Borky will get back with you. After six, no. But before six, he'll, he'll, he'll Forget about it. I try my hardest to be as consistent as possible like with my statements on things. You know, not to be a hypocrite when it comes to... This conversation, I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world. Yep, you are. Can't, I can't hide from you. that. Not, uh, not mad at you. How's it going setting up your email on your phone? Hasn't happened yet. Now, could you shut up? Still working progress. <laughs> Houston, can we work on that? Michael Borky needs access to email on his telephone. Uh, Apparently, it's... Uh, it's not a thing for him in the year 2020. By the way, Mike Rooney joined us on the Farm Bureau phone line. I encourage you to check out the website, favrates.com, F-A-V-E rates.com. You go there, you type in your zip code, and you can get uh, a quote. And uh, you can find a, uh, an agent near you. Farm Bureau offices in all 82 counties in the state of Mississippi, probably dealing with an agent that uh, you already know. Uh, somebody that uh, you see at the ball fields or bump into at the grocery store, maybe you see at church or uh, on the golf course, uh, folks that are just like you and certainly want to help you, want to be a partner with you. Yeah, they don't call it uh, – if, if you do business with Mississippi Farm Bureau, you are referred to as a member, not a customer, but a member. You are a member of the Mississippi Farm Bureau Association and the uh, best decision I've ever made from an insurance standpoint. Go there, type in your zip code. You can get a quote on auto insurance. You can get a quote on home insurance, or you can bundle the coverage and, uh, and save already competitive rates and then uh, a chance to save even money, even more money by, uh, by bundling those coverages. Hey, Dan, let's go back to uh, what Rooney was talking about uh, just a second ago. The, uh, the draft tonight, 
Uh, he said Justin Foscue, very possibly in the teens. He has been kind of projected pretty consistently at the back half of the teens around 19 uh, with going to the Mets. Westberg, possibly in the first round, if not in the first round, maybe one of those competitive balance picks. Uh, I think it's an almost certainty that Austin Hendrick, the uh, outstanding outfielder out of uh, Pennsylvania that's committed to Mississippi State, uh, will be drafted and will sign to go play professional baseball. It's a, it's a big night for those guys. Yeah, and that doesn't bring up JT Ginn, who could also find his way into the first round as well. So it could be a big night for, for Mississippi State. Uh, you know, Foscue, I saw a mock today that had him going 13th. Who picks there? Oh, that's the San Francisco Giants. So they could use some power. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Westburg, yeah, I feel like you're, it's sort of a toolsy pick. You know, he, he never really put it all together, but man, you can see the talent there for sure. And then Ginn, I think Ginn would have probably been a, a top 10 pick had he not gotten hurt. Uh, but getting, you know, having the injury. Uh, has going to put people off on him, but you know later in the first round, some t- and sort of what Mike was saying. This isn't a whoever drafts JT again isn't saying, okay, we need you to come in day one and be our our, our front line starter. You know, you got years to worry about this kind of stuff. Sure. So, uh, could see him go in the first round as well. Uh, draftsite.com slash MLB. There's a mock draft. It was updated most recently just before 8 o'clock Central Time this morning. Spencer Torkelson going number one overall to Detroit. That's the first baseman out of Arizona State. I mentioned this when we were talking to Mike. He would be the first ever first baseman taken number one overall in the common draft era. Austin Martin, the shortstop from Vanderbilt, going number two. He would be the second shortstop in a handful of years, joining Dansby Swanson out of Vanderbilt to uh, be an early selection. Was Swanson, was he the first pick overall, or was he number two? Went to the Braves? Well, he didn't go originally go to the Braves. Uh... While you look that up, I'll keep going. Asa Lacey out of Texas A&M at number three to the Marlins. Just give you some of the SEC guys. First overall uh, Emer- pick. Yep, number one overall. By whom? By the Diamondbacks. So went to the Diamondbacks and then was later traded to the Braves. Yeah, which is Shelby some Miller, of what Miller deal. Yeah, some some of what Mike Rooney was talking about as well. You know, you draft on talent right now to prepare yourself for trades uh, down the line. Emerson Hancock to Pittsburgh at number seven, the uh, right-hander out of Georgia. Heston Kerstad from Arkansas going at number eight to San Diego. This is the projection from uh, MLB's DraftSite.com. Uh, Reed Detmers, a name you may remember. He was the opening day starter for Louisville against Ole Miss this year. Was just a, a stud last year as well. He wasn't great in the first inning, and then he locked in and really just had Ole Miss hitters off balance for the uh, the entire time that he was in the ball game. We mentioned Austin Hendrick a second ago, the high school player that's committed to Mississippi State out of West Allegheny High School in Pennsylvania. He is projected to go 12th to Cincinnati. Uh, Garrett Crochet, the lefty from Kentucky, projected to go 16th to the Cubs. Uh, Justin Foscue, 19th to the Mets. Uh, Cole Wilcox, the hard-throwing right-hander out of Georgia, 22 to the Nationals. In terms of SEC guys, that's it in the first round. Now, in the the sandwich round, or the competitive balance picks, uh, Auburn's Tanner Burns at number 30 to Baltimore. Carmen Majinski out of South Carolina at 33 to Arizona. Uh, Cole Henry, the right-hander from LSU at 35 to Colorado. Does that seem like a reach for Colorado? It's a little bit, maybe. Maybe not. 
mean, again, it's it's we're not talking about guys that have to be there day one. Yeah, to, you're to right. Play, so. And he's got the size too. It's six four two eleven. Looking ahead into the uh, into the second round, JT Ginn projected to go forty second to Toronto. Jordan Westberg forty third to Seattle. Uh, Casey Martin, the shortstop that was uh, error prone the last couple of years, but certainly talented uh, at forty six to Colorado. Daniel Cabrera from LSU at forty seven to the White Sox. Uh, any other SEC guys in the first couple of rounds? Uh, Blaze Jordan uh, projected to go 61 to the Marlins. He's out of DeSoto Central High School in uh, DeSoto County. Third baseman, big, 6'2", 222. Uh, and then a couple of other uh, SEC guys. Uh, Jack Leftwich from Florida at 63 to St. Louis. Uh, that's kind of through the uh, the end of the second round. So... Mississippi State could be a different-looking team next year. If you take away JT Ginn, who was the ace going into this season, you take away Westberg, you take away Foscue, so middle of the infield, and then two guys that were expected to be big, big contributors coming in. Uh, I say expected to be. You, you know, you hope yeah. you get guys like that on campus. You get the commitments from them, but there's some that you know it's probably not likely you're ever going to see them on campus. Yeah, and Hendrick was definitely definitely one of those. I mean, there was a time where he was the number one overall prospect in the, in the high school class. So you you know, it was great to have his commitment, and if things worked out, it've been fantastic. But no, you don't ever expect to get that guy. Blaze Jordan is the guy. Just depending on who you ask, you know, you may you may end up in start rule or may not. Uh, I know when we talked to Keith Law on the podcast the other day, he was not very high on Blaze Jordan. Didn't 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 like him as a prospect. Hardly at all, which is you know goes really? against everything we've heard about him for the last what five years. So, uh, yeah, state state will definitely have a different look, but you know that Ole Miss knows it too. That's what happens in the SEC when you recruit elite talent. They they don't sometimes they don't come to campus. They they leave early. That's just the way it is. We're gonna spend some more time on college baseball transitioning into MLB uh, coming up next when uh, Ted Cahill joins us. It's been a while since we've talked to Teddy. We would have. Been talking to him every week or two throughout the uh, the last couple of months, but uh, circumstances have dictated otherwise. So Teddy Cahill joins us on the Farm Bureau phone line next. It's Sports Talk Mississippi. Hey, Dad, in the absence of football, football is giving us a little full contact. What happened back there? Got uh, Bayern Munich and uh, Frankfurt playing in uh, the German Cup semifinal. Yeah, Byron leading it two to one, and uh, fell in the white jersey. I guess he's for uh, Frankfurt. Just gave. I mean, full not a not a a bump, but like a full on shove, where the yeah. uh, the guy from Munich goes crashing into the microphone and then into one of those video boards that wraps around. Uh, there you go Take around the out. stadium. Take him out. Get a couple of yellow cards out of that. Don't know if I this bet. guy's ever gotten a yellow card. Teddy Cahill from uh, Baseball America. He's on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. I guess, Teddy, tonight is the uh, the closest thing to baseball action that we have had since the uh, the first week of March. Is it enough to uh, to get you a little excited? Uh, yeah, it's definitely an exciting time. The draft always is at, at Baseball America, one of our uh, our bigger events. But right now, I'm just trying to remember if I did get a yellow card or not while I was playing soccer. I feel like I did, but could not be positive of that. Do you think it was deserved? If you did, was it deserved? Uh, most likely. 
I probably said I bet, something. You know, I, I bet you got a yellow card for flopping. Oh. No, I played defense slash goalie, so it, it would not have been it would not have been that. There you go. Actually, uh, I think I should have, and I didn't because I like punched a kid, like I was <laughs> punching the ball, and I like got the ref to buy that. Like I, I thought I was punching the ball, but like I, I was pretty sure I knew what I was doing. Yeah, pretty sure. He says, "How many years ago was this?" <laughs> Uh, more than ten now. <laughs> okay, statute of limitations is uh, is officially up. So, Ted, we spend more time talking about SEC baseball than than any other part of the country. So, obviously, that's going to be our focus here. The SEC is loaded with talent year after year after year. What does this particular draft do to the conference in comparison to previous years' draft? With the caveat that it's only going to be five rounds. Yeah, so there's some real strong top-end talent. I mean, obviously, Austin Martin is going to be one of the first couple picks off the board, and Aza Lacey is considered to be the top uh, college pitcher, the top pitcher in general in the draft, and uh, Emerson Hancock not far behind him. You're going to see a lot of SEC pitchers go off the board. Um, I know at one point we were looking at, could this be a record for SEC arms or arms from one conference in the first round? I'm honestly not sure where we stand on that in terms of what we're expecting tonight. Uh, but there are a lot of guys that you know pitched in the conference that, that are going to be really high draft picks. And so you're going to see a lot of premium talent go. Uh, but because the draft is only five rounds, maybe there will be a few more high school players getting to, to SEC schools than normal. So uh, you know, while they produce a ton of draft picks every year, they also – you know, bring in the top recruits year after year. So, I mean, these things feed each other. Yeah, you, you mentioned that, that Baseball America spends a ton of time leading up to the draft and its analysis of players and, and in its draft coverage as well. We were talking to Mike Rooney a, a few minutes ago, and I asked him if signability this year is more important, more imperative than it's ever been before. We, we know that it has become a bigger deal since we've gotten to kind of the slot value system. Uh, you know, for the for the first ten rounds, but this year, I mean, Major League Baseball teams they just don't have the luxury of missing on a player this year, do they? No, I mean, you only have five rounds, so you're drafting five, six players. Uh, if you don't sign a player, you're in serious trouble, I would say. And you know, so you've got to you've really got to know, and you also don't have, you know because of the way the draft is structured with the bonus pools and you, know, you can save money on one pick and spend it on another one or, you know, that, that kind of scenario in a normal draft, you know, you have 10 rounds to, to play around with that. This time around, you only have five. So there's a little bit less uh, cushion potentially. You're, it is going to be a big deal. And I would expect pretty much that every single player drafted this year signs as opposed to, um, you know, last year there were a couple top ten rounders that did, and I would be pretty surprised if that happened this year, unless that was by design. Uh, you know, there have been rumors about, you know, would a team just kind of, you know, take a player that was expected to be a, a difficult sign just to to save a little money that way. Uh, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that the, the 160 players he's drafted, I, I would expect them all to, to sign when uh, when the deadline comes. 
Do you think the economic strife that's going on right now and kind of the debate about whether or not MLB comes back and you know what we're hearing from the owners and what we're hearing from the players, does that have any effect on the economics of this draft? I mean, it does to an extent. You know, you have teams uh, this year only paying 100000 of the, the signing bonus this year, and then everything else is deferred to over the following two years. So in some respects, you know, draftees will definitely see it right away. Uh, you know, beyond that, I'll be interested to see how many teams use a full percentage of, of their draft pool. Usually we see just about every team go, uh, you know, up to the, the full percentage or even some of them go a little bit over and pay some tax on that. I'll, I'll be interested to see how often teams are willing to pay tax this year. Uh and then, you know, the, the non-drafted free agents being limited to just $20,000, certainly, you know, if you have a choice of where you can go, I would expect that, you know, agents and players have been, you know, aware of which teams have been uh, a little more ready to pay their minor leaguers, you know, throughout the season than others. And, and the, that has not necessarily gone unnoticed and, and that that might impact uh, some decisions once the draft ends. Teddy, most of the conversation has been about the fact that it's only five rounds. You do have the ability to sign undrafted free agents after the fact, but you're you're capped at twenty thousand dollars. I'm not even sure exactly what the right question is is here. Do, do you believe that this means more players will come back to college, or? Is it still going to be the guys that are just kind of ready to go give it a shot with pro ball? They're just going to go. Yeah, that is really interesting and a little unanswerable. I'm, I'm very fascinated to see how that comes about. They aren't able to sign the undrafted free agents until Sunday morning. So once that period opens, I'm going to be very interested to see. You know, I think some teams are going to get after it very aggressively and, and make some, some pitches to, to a lot of players and, and get some brought in, but I, I think other teams are going to look at it and say, you know, that we probably aren't playing minor league baseball this year. Um, do we need to sign? How many players do we need to sign? And, you know, do we? How, how much money do we want to throw at that? And then from the player side, there's certainly players every year that are just ready to start their pro careers. And then there are going to be some players that are probably looking at it like, you know, I, I see what's coming up behind me. Do I want to compete for a spot? next year and potentially lose and then you know then what happens or do i want to take twenty thousand dollars right now so i think there will be players that are ready to take that deal i think there might be you know there, there's certainly going to be with the option to return there are going to be players that choose to take that option uh but you know that returning to to school in a partial scholarship sport has financial considerations of its own so yeah. there, there's a lot sure. going into these decisions that uh, you know, every non-drafted free agent is going to be uh, going to be looking at later this week. Justin Foscue from Mississippi State projected uh, looks like in most places to go in the teens. Is he a for sure first rounder in your mind? I think that yeah, he's uh, he's definitely cemented himself there. Just as uh, you know, he's such a solid hitter. He can do a few different things on the infield, third base, second base, and uh, hits for, hits for power, hits for average. He. Uh, he seems like a, a pretty safe pick overall, and seems like that's how teams are evaluating him right now. Westberg, Jordan Westberg at Mississippi State has been projected from anywhere late 
first round to somewhere in the middle of the second round, do you think that's generally where he falls? Does he slip into the back end of that first round tonight, or is he more likely a day two pick? You know, I don't know that he's going to be in the first round. He might be in one of these comp picks that they take right after the first round, which by some definitions you'll see called a first rounder. So I think he's in play tonight, but I think that if he doesn't go tonight, he's one of the very early picks in in tomorrow's uh, second round. How high do you project Anthony Servideo from Ole Miss? I I feel like that's a third round, probably. But if he snuck into the second round, I guess I wouldn't be overly surprised. But he seems like a a third rounder, uh, maybe a fourth rounder to me, but, but probably somewhere in the third round. And, and seemingly some mixed reviews. Tyler Keenan, the third baseman for Ole Miss, feels like he could come back and probably have some leverage and maybe help his value next year, but maybe a team really likes him. Where does he end up? My guess is he returns, but that's a really interesting one to watch. Uh, so productive, but you know when a pro scout looks at him, they probably look at you know him and say, well, are you really a third baseman? And at that point... You're a first baseman, and, and that just kind of lowers your value a little bit. And so it might be hard for him to match up with where he thinks he belongs in this year's draft. Uh, you know, I could see it happening for him in the fifth round. I could also see him back anchoring the Ole lineup next year. Teddy, I'm sorry that we haven't talked a dozen times in the last two and a half months, but it's good to visit <laughs> with you today. Absolutely. It's been a strange sprint, but finally, uh, you know, we'll get a little bit of normalcy this week. Absolutely. It's Teddy Cahill on the Farm Bureau phone line. We'll take a timeout and be right back with you. All guests on Sports Talk Mississippi appear on the the Farm Bureau phone line, favorites.com. That's their website. Mississippi Farm Bureau, go with the home team. So Mike Rooney hit leadoff today. Ted Cahill joined us just a few moments ago. We'll talk with Jim Gallagher Jr. coming up to begin the 4 o'clock hour as well. As we get set for the return of the PGA Tour from Fort Worth tomorrow morning at uh, at Colonial, uh, saw this news pop up this morning. Hey, Dad, uh, John Rothstein says Mississippi State will play Utah State in a neutral site game in Panama City, Florida, not Panama, on December twenty first. Kind of weird, huh? Like it's not a tournament; it's just a neutral site game in Florida against a team from Utah. But why? I, I, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that one. Maybe uh, ben Allen wanted to spend a few days on the beach. Hey, man! Yeah, well, Christmas on the beach is is fine. Uh, you know, from a isn't this a, about the point on the calendar last year where Mississippi State went to Jackson and played New Mexico State? Yeah. Yeah, so it makes you wonder if they're going to play the game at the Coliseum again. I don't know if that's the case yet or not. Um, I mean, from a, from an RPI standpoint, it's a good it's a good matchup. Utah State is a very good team, a neutral site game. That'll be a nice little boost, especially if you can get the win. Um, but from a logistics standpoint, it's kind of odd. John Hartwell, the athletics director at Utah State. Yeah, for whatever it's worth, just a little connection there. So uh, yeah. There's that. Did we talk? Go ahead. It's just weird. It's just odd. Yeah, I mean, when I first read that, I was like, oh, the the tournament that they have in Destin around Thanksgiving. And then I was like, 
no, that's not what this is. This is not the Emerald Coast Classic. No. It is not in Niceville or wherever that's played. It's in PCB. Yeah. you got to respect the hustle of people that are finding excuses to go spend some time at the beach. Yeah. Maybe summer plans were thwarted. I don't know. Did we talk about the fact that uh, Ole Miss added a home-and-home with Dayton in basketball last week? Uh, we did not. They finalized their uh, non-conference schedule as well. It's actually a really good one. I mean, there's they already have Dayton and Memphis and Wichita State, and then they have a, a tournament. What is it? The Cayman Islands, I think, where Kansas yeah. State is in it. Uh, you've got Rick uh, Stansberry's Western Kentucky Hilltoppers in it. Uh, Miami, uh, Oregon State. So their non-conference schedule with Dayton added was already a really good one. Add Dayton on the road and suddenly strength of schedule wasn't going to be much of an issue anyway, but now it's going to be really in your favor if you win those games or not. Hmm. Yeah, um... I don't think ESPN's got the rights for the tournament in the Cayman Islands, which is too bad. I think that's a CBS sports thing. I'd be all for a trip to the uh, to the Caymans. I for wonder some basketball why. in November or December. You just love to work, don't you? That's why you want to go there. You're just a uh, workaholic, aren't you? Yes, but in fairness, now those tournaments are a lot of fun, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, especially two years ago when I got to go and do Battle for Atlantis. That was fantastic. My family went. You know, We went a couple of days early. That was... That was great. But it is, I mean, never mind. I'm, I'm not going to make any excuse and pretend like it wasn't fantastic. It was. <laughs> there, there, are, there are times when you're there where you're like sitting in your room working on game notes and charts and kind of looking out the window. So at the very least, the uh, view out the window is spectacular. But it's like, I'd really like to have my toes in the sand right now instead of burying in my computer, which I could be doing in, you know. Well, you get Wi-Fi poolside, right? You should have just sat at a, you know, a nice little lawn chair with the laptop on your lap and a frozen drink next to you and done your work there. Yeah. Hey, uh, breaking news. Statement from NASCAR. The presence of the Confederate flag at NASCAR events runs contrary to our commitment to providing a welcoming and inclusive environment for all fans, our competitors, and our industry. Bringing people together around a love for racing and the community that it creates is what our fans, uh, what makes our fans and sports special. The display of the Confederate flag will be prohibited from all NASCAR events and properties. That's a pretty significant statement from that particular sports organization. Absolutely. It's helped that they've had uh, their African-American driver uh, spoken out about what he feels when he, on race day. Bubba Wallace, I think. Yeah, when he sees those flags everywhere on race day, what he thinks, uh, the the message they are sending to him. And, of course, you get a lot of, well, free speech, free speech, it's... uh, private organization on private tracks they can kind of do what they want yeah uh so um so that news is out there sports talk mississippi with you 
Streaming online at supertalk.fm, we'll talk some golf with Jim Gallagher Jr. after a short timeout and the news. With you getting started right now on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. The Ceasefire text line is open to you, 601 879 4395. At Ceasefire, they're not just saying they care, they're taking action to show it through COVID 19 and every day. From free wireless data for educational websites to connecting businesses with the tools to work from home, learn more at ceasefire.com slash ceasefire cares. Right now on the Farm Bureau phone line, our good friend Jim Gallagher Jr. as we are on the eve of the return of PGA Tour golf. That's reason to celebrate, isn't it, Jim? Absolutely. It's exciting uh, to get back out there. I actually played some golf this past weekend up at Old Waverly, so uh, just looking forward to seeing how uh, just getting some sports back on there. It's going to be interesting to see the production part of it because it's going to be some tricky different things they have to do. Uh, but overall, I think everyone's pretty excited. I know the players are real excited to get back. I guess I'm a jerk for not calling and seeing if you wanted to come sooner. I got to play Friday morning at Waverly, and I, I know you've played there a lot, probably a whole lot more than me. I, I would guess I've played over the course of 15 or 20 years, maybe 15 rounds. I don't ever remember the greens being any more pure than they are right now in West Point at Old Waverly. No, they were wonderful. The whole golf course is really in good shape, and they're busy. People are. That's the thing during all this. Uh, golf has really benefited from it, just from the local point uh, of view, just talking to a bunch of the pros. There's just people are out playing golf. They're excited. It's fun to be outside. So uh, now we're going to get to see some PGA Tour golf and, and kind of get the ball rolling. It's real important for them to have a good week uh, for all the sports world and just everything. Uh, they're the first real, I mean, of course, NASCAR came out, but really the first one to get out there and, and kind of can really do this right, really kind of get the ball rolling in the right direction. So last time we talked, we talked about the idea of miking players up. It was right after the, uh, the match happened and everybody was mm-hmm. kind of talking about that. And you told us no way it happens. And then we get the uh, news from CBS yesterday that, uh, the tour and some players have agreed to do it. Is that surprising to you? Uh, there's a couple going to do it. It's not surprising. I mean, there's uh, you're not going to see a lot of these top players. I mean, the, the rumor is, that, of course, they're saying maybe Ricky Fowler may be doing it. Uh, but it's going to, uh, I think personally, just from doing it and playing and, and doing the broadcast, if the announcer will lay out and not say a word when the caddy and the player are having the conversation, you can get pretty much all you want to get. Uh, and that's what people are wanting to hear. I mean, listening to what the guys say in between shots, it's irrelevant to anything. But as far as, like, their strategy and everything, if, if the announcers just lay out and not say a word, you can get a lot of that. That being said, uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, they also have a thing where I think there's going to be a station somewhere where they'll do, like, a 20-second interview. So the players are going to probably be for this maybe a little bit early on. We'll see as this continues on. Uh, if, if it's, it's great for the game. Uh, but you, you listen to Justin Thomas. He said he's not going to do it as an announcer. I wish he would, but as a player, I totally understand that. What's the rust factor going to be like this weekend? The, the field is just absolutely stacked. Top five players in the world. It's like 17 of the top 20 and you know 45 of the top 50. I, I don't know that those numbers are exact. But are these guys going to look the same as they would have looked if they'd been playing, you know, two out of every three events for the last three months? 
I think the biggest deal is you go from just being at home practicing and playing to really now having the score that really counts. I think that's a different mentality. There's going to be a lot of rust. The thing that's going to be interesting watching is normally around this golf course, it's a very small piece of property, very tight golf course. There's grandstands behind a lot of the greens. You can knock it over the green and go into the grandstands where there's nothing behind these greens. And if the wind gets blowing like it can and probably will, you may see some guys that hit it in the rough, catch some flyers, the ball just continues on you know, 20 yards over the green as, as opposed to 20 feet. But as far as the rest factor, I think it's going to be there. Uh, but these guys, you know, I think they're excited to get back out there. It's that mental uh, thing that we usually as pros, we just kind of take it for granted. We use eight iron at this club or, or that. So the decision-making might be a little bit tricky. I think as the week goes on, they'll get a little bit more comfortable getting back into it. But there's going to be some rust, no question about it. Uh, it's, it's a tough golf course to hit fairways, so look for guys that can keep the ball in play. Uh, and, 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 you know, once you get in the fairway, you've got a chance. You start missing fairways around this golf course, it gets very tough to get to some of these hole locations. And that's the tricky part. Short games are probably where you'll see the most rest because they haven't hit some chip shots and haven't really been putting with the pressure on. The full shots will probably be the same, but as far as around the greens, that's where you probably see a lot of the rest. What would be the ideal golf course to come back from this long break in terms of the way PGA Tour pros look at thing, things, or, or is this it? I think it's a great golf course. I love Colonial. It's kind of old school. It's not you know super long. It's a lot of right to left, left to right, a lot of movement off the tee, small, you know, some greens that have sections to them. Uh, in, in our day playing, it was one of the best. It's one you always wanted to play. They always had strong fields. But, you know, I think for players in the modern game, they look for a little bit more room off the tee. So your field village would be one of those that you would see them enjoy going to play. But I, I think the guys who haven't played here in a while, they're going to enjoy it. Uh, you're not going to, you may not see a lot of drivers off the tee because you really don't have to. But with all the dog legs out on this golf course, the people who have had success here and have played well, the thing that's great about this golf course, it's not going to lend itself to just the bombers. I mean, the short hitters, if you look over the years, they've got a really good chance to have a really good week and win. Uh, it's real important, like I said, to get in the fairway to have a chance there. So you're going to see a lot more guys have a chance to win this week than maybe if you went to a mirror field or one of those bigger golf courses where you just kind of bomb it out there and go. All right, so give me three guys that you think have got a legit shot to win after three months off. I'd like I'd like to see John Rahm. I think it's uh, I think he's a potential guy. He when you look for the last nine or ten years, the most birdies and eagles. He's second on that list. Justin Rose is a guy to look at. Uh, Sunjay M is a guy to kind of look at. He plays a lot. He mm-hmm. plays very solid. Look for and he was playing some good golf going into that. Those are three names I'd like to see. I think a name that everybody wants to see how he comes back would be Jordan Spieth and see if this time off, if he's worked out the kinks he had, if he comes back out on a golf course he's had some success at, maybe this is the week he kind of gets things going in the right direction. For, for Jordan Spieth to get back to the level of playing the way he was a couple of years ago, what, what needs to get better in his game? Uh, the ball strike, everything com- combined. I think his ball striking got off a little bit, which puts the pressure on his putting. I think it's a mental approach more than anything for him. I think it's a mental fight sometimes he has uh, you know with himself he had some mechanical things he had to work out hopefully they've worked those things out but uh when you look back at the year he had or a couple year run there those are almost impossible those are career years and he had them early on in his career tough to duplicate that uh but i think for him he's not far from home at the golf course he's had a lot of success on he's won 
And, you know, I think for him, it's getting out there. It's whether he can get over, overcome that mental kind of hurdle that he's had uh, uh, in the last year or so. All right, let's pull this thing back to Mississippi. I got a text message from a buddy of mine, and he needs you to help settle an argument. He says, ask Jim, if you don't mind, where Old Waverly ranks in his mind for semi-private golf courses. Now, I know you're a little biased. You have great admiration for George Bryan, but try and take the, that, that lens off just for a second. And just mm-hmm. in, in terms of courses that you've played, how does Old Waverly stack up? I, to me, if you're talking about private golf course, uh, I think it's the best. If you're looking for the hardest fallen oak down the, on the coast, is the hardest golf course I've played in the state. So uh, that kind of answers your question. I, I just think for the whole experience, uh, you know, when you walk in, drive in the gate to the whole thing, I think Old Waverly is about as good as it gets. But if you want the hardest golf course, it's got to be Fallen Oak. And and outside the state of Mississippi, does Old Waverly stack up well with courses in Tennessee, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, kind of all over the southeast? Yeah, I think the only thing different, it's a little shorter maybe by modern standards. But as far as a fun golf course for all levels to play, I think that it's there. I went out there, like I said, I hadn't played any hardly any golf, and you've got to get the ball in the fairway, but the average guy can play and have a good time. You go to a golf course like Paul and Oak, you're just going to get beat up. Even Mossy Oak across the street is very difficult if if, uh, if you're not that good a player. So uh, there's challenges to it, but I think for that whole experience, oh, Waverly, and that's the way I look at it. You know, when you walk driving the gate, when you walk in there, the experience, of course, I do. I, I love the place. But it's, you know, they wouldn't have had the USGA events, a women's open, the U.S. women's am last, uh, last year if it wasn't one of the tops in the Southeast. Last thing for you. What's, uh, what's your schedule like in terms of television coverage coming up? I wish I knew. And I think that's the trickiest part right now. They're all just waiting to see how these next few weeks go. Uh, I don't think they're going to let us back in the studio for at least a month or so. Live golf, it's just changing so much, and, and we're having another uh, meeting Friday to find out. But as of now, I still have no idea where I'm going to be. I have a feeling I'm going to work the Sanderson because I can drive to it, and I'm already on that schedule as far as live golf, as far as studio. A lot depends how many people they let in. So kind of up in the air like everybody else, and I think these next three or four weeks to kind of dictate when I'm going to get to go back to work and, uh, and see how these things go. Well, hopefully I get to see you before uh, before September in Jackson, but uh, wish you all the best and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon, my friend. All right, buddy. Thanks uh, for the call. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. That's Jim Gallagher, Jr. on the Farm Bureau phone line. Getting set for golf starts tomorrow. The Charles Schwab Challenge in Fort Worth at Colonial. You heard him. Heard him. A little tighter course, maybe not a course that is designed as much for the bombers that you see on tour. Shotmaker's course. Sports Talk Mississippi. We'll be right back with you. Maybe not as good as Arms of the Angel that uh, Borky played earlier, but uh, bad on the bump music. Sports Talk Mississippi with you streaming at supertalk.fm. The reason he played that music early because, well, he said it was a sad day. Southeastern Conference will not have football media days as we know them. It will hold its first ever virtual football media days in 2020. It was sent out, uh, that announcement came out via email earlier today. Scheduled to be in Atlanta July 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th, College Football Hall of Fame. 
and the Omni Atlanta Hotel. The statement said conducting football media days in a virtual format will provide us the opportunity to manage the event in a healthy manner as we continue to be impacted by COVID-19 and will provide flexibility for our programs to adjust their preparation for the 2020 football season. Yuck. According to the preseason calendar that is expected to be expanded due to the cancellation of the spring football season. We look forward to returning to our traditional Media Days format in 2021. This really does suck, though, not just because like being in Atlanta would have been fun and all that, but for the first time in what feels like forever, and maybe it's been the first time in forever, uh, the focus of that event would have revolved around Ed Orgeron and then Ole Miss and Mississippi State. Everybody there, and they were all on separate days if I remember correctly, right? Either way, everybody there, once Coach O was done, would have focused almost exclusively on Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach. They would have been the story in Atlanta for four days. They would have been talked about in the college football world in front of everybody, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, the center of college football for a good reason for the first time since 2014 and the first time at an event like that maybe ever. And it's it's a shame that that opportunity has has been taken away from from this state to be front and center for a good thing regarding the football programs. Hey, Dad, true or false, in a Zoom call format, Dan Mullen will raise his feet to show on the camera what shoes he is wearing. Ah, well, you know, hold on, let's see if I can get back here. There we go. There it is right there. Yes, he'll do that. It is true. That's one, 100% true. He may not raise his feet. He may just take the shoe off and place it in front of the camera. Yeah. Yeah, the new Jumpman's. I, I think I've said this before. There's so many people that complain about SEC football media days. They, you know, the, the, the sports writer bunch is a big old complaining crowd. You know, for, for guys that live on free press box food and, you know, what's in it for me? There's a lot of complaining. When somebody else pays for their hotel rooms and they get to expense meals and talk about and write about football for four days. I've never been one of those guys. I love SEC football media days. The first time I ever went, it was in Birmingham, and that was in the summer of 1999. I had just graduated high school, was getting ready for my freshman year at Ole Miss, convinced somebody at the uh, school newspaper to let me write a column or two and got credentialed. The um, former sports editor at the Oxford Eagle, Don Witten, kind of took me under his wing and showed me the ropes. This was when it was still at the Sheraton in Birmingham. It has obviously grown exponentially since then to the point where it's a 1,000 or so media members. I just think it's a super cool event. Not that we learn a ton, but it makes it feel like college football is here, and you get to hear from the coaches, and you get to hear from the players, and you get to talk to them, and you get to reconnect with you know, colleagues from you know, all over the southeast and in some cases all over the country. I just think it's a, a good event, 
and it's a bummer that it's not happening. And you'll forgive me for thinking that a bunch of Zoom calls with players and coaches from teams across the SEC is going to be kind of boring. It's going to be really boring. The people who complain about media days are losers. I'll just come out and say it. I mean, my gosh, you get to sit in an air-conditioned room, a really well-air-conditioned room when it's in uh, Hoover. You might have to write a couple of stories. You listen to coaches talk, and then afterwards we all go out to dinner and then head to the bar. Oh, woe is me. <laughs> How do you really feel? I mean, it's, it's just so... Oh, I hate media days. Just, you could be digging ditches, bro. Just just enjoy life a little bit, why don't you? You got a good job. Jeez. It's annoying. Yeah. So we'll hear from everybody, the commissioner and whatnot, and you'll just have a bunch of sound bites. I do hope that they will set it up. Set it, I don't know how the setup's going to be, but you know, part of being at Media Days for us is you know, coaches and players, we get to talk to those guys. They come down and do a segment with us. I hope they uh, allot time for us to maybe record some stuff, just tell the coaches, hey, you got to be on this Zoom call, and then you got to do this. And then for one hour, we're going to divvy you up between five or six radio shows, and, and you got to do, you know, 10 minutes with them. Yeah. I hope that's the case. I don't want to dash your hopes. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, it. my guess is, generally speaking, coaches don't like this event. Yeah. I think the players that get to go, for the most part, enjoy it. But I think most coaches, if they were honest with you, would tell you, yeah, I'd rather not go spend a day answering a bunch of questions about my football team. I'd rather just be getting ready for football season. Well, this so, isn't even a day, though. This is two hours. Yeah. No, I agree with you. So what would the biggest storylines have been going in this year? I think I said it. I think it's Ed Orgeron yeah. and then Mike Leach and Lane Kiffin. I, I agree with with that. I agree with you with that. I think you know some secondary ones is Florida ready to overtake Georgia? Could have been one. Is Tennessee ready to take a big step forward? It's been the um, one of the chief storylines of SEC media has, days but, for a decade. But this is one where I actually feel like a little <laughs> confident that it might actually happen this year. True. Um, you know, I mean, you got a bunch of new coaches. Yeah. Jamie Newman so. will be taught or would have been talked about a lot. Yeah, or JT Daniels might get talked about a lot. Yeah, true. T- tell you what we're going to do for the uh, for the rest of this four o'clock hour. We'll start it when we come back from the uh, the break, and would like for you to participate as well. You can do so on the Ceasefire text line six zero one eight seven nine four three nine five is the number six zero one eight seven nine four three nine five. What is the one question? that you have for each SEC team. You don't have to send us 14 of them, but if you've got a question that you're curious, and, and we'll, do the, uh, we'll do the same thing. So we'll walk through, you know, we'll start in the East, we'll go Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Missouri, South Carolina, Tennessee, Vanderbilt. It's the one question that if you could ask the head coach or you just think is the most interesting thing about each team going into the, uh, to the 2020 season. So what is it for Dan Mullen about Florida? What is it for Kirby Smart about Georgia? Mark Stoops at Kentucky. Eli Drinkwitz at uh, at Missouri. Is there a chance that he would have stolen the show this year at Media Day? Seem, seems highly unlikely with Kiffin and Leach there, doesn't it? 
mean, just yeah, based I think on Leach, based on what I've seen from him, he's just very uh, corny. I guess would be the word I would use. Yeah, but some of that crowd eats corny up. No, you're not wrong. Um, I think Mike Leach would have been really, really fascinating. I was going to be interested to see how Lane Kiffin approached this. Because doing local or regional media things is not really his favorite thing to do. I mean, yeah. I think you can listen to the conversation that we had with him on, on this show. You can listen to other interviews that he's done, and you can tell it's really probably not at the top of his priority list and things that, uh, of things that he enjoys doing. But then you hear him on some shows, you know, if he's on Dan Patrick or on with Colin Cowherd or you know, somebody at a, a national level, you, you get a little more personality and a little bit more engagement there. So, you know, maybe it would have been a mix. Maybe on set when he was, you know, with Paul Feinbaum and Laura Rutledge and Tim Tebow, he probably would have opened up and been fairly affable and interesting. But I just don't know, standing on that big stage... Uh, on the podium, what his uh, kind of what his plan would have been going in? Anything would have better would have been better than the filibuster paired with who's going to be your kick returner. I was Mike I was Leach. I think would have been. What are you talking about? Yeah, I, I think Mike Leach would have been everything we could have hoped for in that setting. Alas. All right, so what are the questions that you have for each SEC team? We'll do that when we come back with you. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. More coming up. you on Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm. Lane Kiffin had a Zoom call with local media today and a bunch of different things were addressed. A couple of quotes, not going to give you all of them or try and read the entire transcript, but a couple of the quotes that popped up on the quarterback competition with regard to whether you know not having spring practice affected that. He said it certainly doesn't help. We try to be positive, but you have to be factual also. Not having spring practice hurt us in evaluation. This part's fascinating to me. He said, John Rice Plumley probably would have fallen behind, I assume, just off of baseball and the amount of time for us to evaluate and work with him and throwing the ball in the system. In that sense, it probably neutralized it in terms of those two, talking about Plumley and Matt Corral, with no one having an advantage. So uh, kind of an interesting take uh, there. And on how confident he is if the season will actually start on time. I don't know how confident I am. That changes kind of weekly to me. I sometimes think, oh, it's going to be fine because our kids are coming back here and starting to work out. There are other times I say, I don't know how we're going to play with this thing still going on. You're going to go into weeks where all of a sudden the team is down 15 players and eight defensive backs because Corona got into the DB room. Now you have no idea who's going to be able to play that week. You might have to sit everyone in that DB room for two weeks. How do you play? So it's kind of an interesting take from a uh, from a coach yeah. on that. 
you just you just hope they can find a way to keep it away from the players, and it's inevitable somebody's going to test positive. But I mean, that's a great question. I haven't seen really an answer for that because if you get one or two players, like we've said a few times, you just treat it like an injury. They're out for two weeks. They sprain their ankle. But if it's eight guys in the same position group, I mean, can you really make a team play without a defensive line? I I've, I, I don't know the answer to that, and I don't. I think everybody we haven't seen an we answer. Got this because new thing we're going to try out defensively. We call it a zero man front. <laughs> Jolie Dunn ran that once. What well, what is the? How'd that go? Uh, third third. I, I I'm not making this up. It was against Kentucky, and, and Mike Leach would have been the offensive coordinator. Uh, got to the quarterback on first and second down, third and like 15. They ran a draw play for about 50 yards, and that's when you saw the big guys shuffling onto the field. <laughs> Just kind of ease on back out there, boys. Like, uh, guys, get out there. We're gonna we're gonna change that up. We, we we couldn't know really until we tried it, but we tried it, and that did not work. Yeah. All right. Questions for each team in the SEC. Actual football talk. Florida Gators, what's your question? Are you ready now? Two good years under Dan. Well, I don't know if I would ask Dan Mullen this directly, but are they ready now to compete on a national level? You would think year three at a place like that, and even though he's lost some guys in his recruiting classes, he's recruited well enough. Is this a year where you're actually going to be competitive? For the SEC East, the SEC, and on a national level. They've had good seasons, but not that kind of season is year three when you're taking that step forward. Mine is, you know, after covering Mullen for all those years, is, you know, it's sort of a playoff of why should I believe you're ever going to take that step forward, Dan? You've you've never been able to do it. When it's come down to the penultimate game, that this is the game we're going to win, and then the next step is a championship. Y- y- you always blow it. So why? Right. Why this? Sh- <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's that's you know. Every weekend, half the team's going to win, half the team's going to lose. So that's what I line, Why do you all go to great lengths not to mention anything about Bama, but you always mention Georgia or Florida? Is today what your first time Florida? listening? That's Which that. I what questions? What questions do I have about Bama? You know, are hey, you going to win the national title again? You, got, you guys going to win another national title this year? That'll be awesome. Can't wait to see it. I'm trying to think, you know, with regard to Florida, feels like they're close to having everything in place, and you guys keep up with recruiting rankings better than I do. I don't have them pulled up in front of me. But I think Florida's finally taking a step forward. And to me, that was the biggest question for Dan Mullen. Was, you know, his reputation at Mississippi State was okay recruiter, great developer of talent. And you got to keep guys in the pipeline because most guys aren't playing when they're true freshmen. Most of his players red shirt. They get that year in the weight room. They get a year learning the system. Maybe play a little bit as a red shirt freshman. And then, you know, by the time they're in their third or fourth year in the program, you know they they've developed and they're ready to be contributors. It's not how you win an SEC Eastern Division championship. Not at a place like Florida. You have to recruit at the same level that Georgia is recruiting, 
the same level that Tennessee appears to be recruiting, and then the same way at the same level that, that the teams in the West, at the top of the West, are recruiting. Because so, you play one of them every year. You play LSU every year if you're Florida. Every single year. Be able to beat them. Got to be able to beat them. And, and so my question for Florida, and it feels like they're starting to answer this because this was a better recruiting class this year. They put together a couple of – it can't just be, okay, it's a top 20 class. It's got to be top 10 classes. And it's got to be top 10 classes year after year after year after year after year. I think they're trending in that direction. It appears to be so. His transition year class was uh, number 17, uh, but that's probably due to the low number of prospects. Only 18 kids signed, 14 of which were four stars. Back-to-back top 10 classes, though, uh, in full cycles. Florida's the kind of place that really recruits itself. So uh, as long as you're competent at recruiting, you should be able to sign top 10 classes every year. Yeah. I uh, I agree on that front. The reason that right now we're talking about Florida and Georgia is because we are working our way alphabetically through the Eastern Division. And so, question about the Georgia Bulldogs. It's got to center around the quarterback spot, right? You've been stable at quarterback for three straight years with Jake Fromm. Insert your Justin Fields joke here if you would like to. Did you get rid of the wrong guy? What, what not. But Georgia is a place... It's a real thing. Well... Georgia is a place that has had consistency at the quarterback position. Year, you know, quarterback after quarterback after quarterback. They tend to have guys that come in and start for two or three or four years. Now they're bringing in a grad transfer who they're expecting to come in and play at a high level and do so for one year, and they've got another transfer that they expect to pick up the reins when Jamie Newman is gone. Can Jamie Newman perform to the level that people think he is performing? Because, Borky, your point about the arm talent and being excited about what he brings to the table, that's all real. Forgive the grammar, Georgia ain't Wake Forest. It is a very different true. ball game in every sense of the word. It's, the, it's a different ball game in terms of competition on a week-in, week-out basis. It's a different ball game in terms of fan attention. It's a different ball game in terms of media spotlight. It is just... It's apples and oranges. But it is still football. Can he do what people think he's going to do at the University of Georgia? Aside from uh, do you have to be blood to be family, I I would ask something along those same lines. Um, Todd Munkin. Can't... can't, uh, Can't, You're wrong he's not going to be at the podium. Can uh, can Jamie Newman in that offense pick up Todd Munkin's system immediately? Because if that's the case with his prowess of calling plays in that offensive talent, albeit new or inexperienced, that's a team that should compete for a national championship. I had forgotten about Todd Munkin as the offensive coordinator there. Yeah, they, they loaded up on the staff this offseason. Yeah. Look, I mean, you know, you say whatever you want to about Matt Luke. He's gone in there and did a really good job solidifying the offensive line class that they brought in from a recruiting standpoint. And I, I get that there are people that want to question his abilities in coaching the offensive line. His reputation as an offensive line coach is good. It, it just is. And Kirby Smart would not have scooped Matt Luke up as quickly as he did if he didn't think, one, he could recruit, and two, he could coach the offensive line. Without a doubt. What's your question for Kentucky? 
it's been such a process for Kentucky, right? When he got there the first couple of years, they weren't good. And then they became, you know, this 5-17 and 17 that was on the verge. Now they're winning big games. Is there another step? Can they take another step? Can they become a contender in the East? Can they be a team that beats Georgia and Florida and gets to an SEC championship game? Does he believe Which two that? years ago they were a contender. They were... They were they were, they were. They had a game with Georgia in November where they could have been in the driver's but, seat in the East. I'm not saying that they were. But nobody said they, they were going to win that on. game. Yeah. But by definition, they were in contention. I mean, I get that, but can they be the favorite in that game? Can they be a consistent top 15 kind of team? No, but they can be a consistent 8 or 9 win team. Well, that's what I'm asking, though. Can they take another step forward and become yeah. a contender in the East? What is your Coach offense Stutzer? going to look like well, now that you yeah, have a quarterback? Who can throw? I, I, that's where I was headed. Are you excited about having a quarterback this year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of, uh, Lynn Bowden's residence got raided by the DEA today <clears throat> while he was home. We'll continue this exercise when we come back and into the 5 o'clock hour. Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Quick pause in the uh, football conversation. Some news from Rob Manfred uh, in an interview on MLB Network. He says that Major League Baseball will make a counter-proposal that moves in the player's direction but says that 89 games, which is what the players wanted, is not realistic. He says it is still best to come to an agreement. Says that Major League Baseball has rights under the March 26th agreement with players. There could come a point where they will exercise those rights. But says players and owners are getting close on agreeing on medical protocols. Went on to say MLB is pretty adamant about not moving the end of the season or the playoffs any later. A direct quote, we will play baseball in 2020 100%. And then more from Rob Manfred. I was responsible for timing of the MLB release. It was because I was listening. We have a large and diverse organization. I wanted to make sure I put a statement out. I wanted to make sure it was consummate with what people in the organization really believe. I'm not sure exactly what statement he's referring to there. That may have been in response to uh, to a question that he got from the uh, interviewers at MLB. So, I mean, the commissioner of Major League Baseball says 100% we are playing baseball in 2020. Well, because he can force them to, right? That's the way I understand it. So, yeah, that doesn't mean that they're going to come to a deal and there's going to be a season that's plausible and everybody's going to hold hands and be happy. Sounds like... He's prepared to make that final call if the two sides can't get any closer. Good. Well, I mean, I just assume that they come to an agreement and they figure out a way to play about 70 games or so. But absent that, give me 48 games. Give me the playoffs. Give me a World Series. I'm 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 done caring who's right and who's wrong and the players this and the owners that and millionaires and billionaires and blah blah blah. I don't care. Just give me baseball. Give me some freaking baseball. Well, but it's a travesty if it's only 48 games. Well, you know what? You know what else was a travesty? COVID nineteen kind of derailed like the whole 
flipping world. Yeah, but. Yeah, but what? Everybody else. See, look, I'm with you. Give us sports any way we can get them. Yeah, but everybody else seemed to have come to their agreements uh, in a far less toxic manner. And now you've got another way. They hate each other. They do. Um, And the problem is uh, they've got another wage dispute coming up. Could you imagine what's what could yeah. happen if they if the commissioner has to do this whatever you call it to force them to play a forty eight game season or whatever it is because the two sides couldn't come to an agreement and it played out very publicly to the dismay of everyone and then next year there's a holdout when there's no coronavirus oh, to stop you that's not good. That obviously wouldn't be good. I mean, it'd wreck them. They, they, I think that's why it's important to to get a deal done now, so next year's negotiations can begin in good faith. Because if you already hate each other, and the commissioner has to come in and play parent, and um, you're, neither of you are getting ice cream and, and shut up and play, next year's negotiations aren't going to start very well. No, they're not. Timing's awful for them with the CBA coming up. I just, I mean, well, there will be an asterisk on the season if you only play 48 games and the World Series champion will be illegitimate. And what doesn't have an asterisk by it in baseball at this point? <laughs> Home run records, I mean, asterisk. Asterisk World yeah, Series, I mean, asterisk. <laughs> yeah. And, and really going back to the early 1900s. I mean, okay, so the last two World Series champions, yeah, not so sure about those. Shoeless Joe, yeah, not so sure about that. Babe Ruth, oh, amphetamines. Pete Rose, cheater. Ty Cobb, dirty player. Lenny Dykstra. Yeah, you can say about whatever you want to about him. Not possible to defame Lenny Dykstra, according to a judge last week. <laughs> it's true. Barry story. Bonds, yeah, asterisk. Sammy Sosa, court bat. No habla inglés except when it's convenient. Mark McGuire, steroids. Palmero, steroids. Roger Clemens, I must have misremembered, asterisk, under oath in front of Congress. I mean, what doesn't have an I don't care anymore. Just suit up and play. People that care about baseball want baseball. People that don't care, they probably checked out anyway. And people who are on the fence, you are pushing them quickly in the direction of checking out. Just play. And the sooner the better. I mean, what a squandered opportunity. Sports Talk Mississippi. Five o'clock hour with you. Fast couple of hours on this Wednesday edition of Sports Talk Mississippi. Richard Cross, Brian Haydad, Michael Borky, thanks for being with us. Ceasefire text line is open 601 879 4395. 
Equip your business for simple, successful business continuity with a work-from-anywhere toolkit from Seaspire Business featuring powerful resources like UC1 and Office 365. With Seaspire Business, it's easy to give your team the tools to get things done regardless of where they are. Share files in seconds, chat on any device, meet virtually, and more all over secure cloud-based solutions with dedicated local support. Get your organization remote work ready today with Seaspire at cspire.com slash business. Good to be with you this afternoon. You can be a part of the conversation on the Seaspire text line as a bunch of you are doing right now. As we roll into the 5 o'clock hour, we remind you that it's time right now for the College Football Fix. College Football Fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to Buy Ford Now and find out about all of the great lineup of vehicles at your local Mississippi Ford dealer. You can go and you can test drive one today. Maybe you get behind the wheel of an expedition. Maybe it's the F-150, the best-selling truck in America for four decades plus three years. 43 straight years as the number one selling truck in America. That is the Ford f 150. Uh, we will circle back to the questions for all the teams uh, in the SEC. I think we got through a grand total of three. Was it four? We got through Florida, Georgia, and Kentucky. Yeah, so that leaves us a, a little bit of work to do uh, in the remainder of the show. But first, um, this story broke today. Reggie Bush. Remember him? Not NFL Reggie Bush. Do you remember Southern Cal Reggie Bush? And I'm not talking about Range Rovers and houses and NCAA. I'm just talking about Reggie Bush on the field. Whew. Hey, Dad, in terms of players that are just worth the price of admission, just fun to watch, he's got to be, if not at the very top of the list, certainly near the top. I believe the, uh, the kids today call it a stand. You can stand for a... I'm a Reggie Bush stand. Love okay. Reggie Bush. If it came to paying for a ticket to watch a player on the field, are you more likely to pay for a ticket to watch Reggie Bush at Southern Cal or Johnny Manziel at Texas A&M? Reggie Bush. Any hesitation there? Nah, not, not much. Okay. What about you, Borky? You don't really remember watching him much at Southern Cal, do you? Okay, I'm not that young. Uh, I was uh, 14 or so his senior year, so I remember it. Okay. I think I think the answer is Manziel, only because he just simply touched the football more. But as far as explosiveness and electricity, it, it's Bush. But... I, that's a tough question. The game man. against it, Fresno State is it, the one that stands out. It's the one that everybody points to, right? That's it, just what he did there that night was inhuman. But if you look back at Manziel's career, post career aside, he had some of those nights too, where things he did were just you couldn't explain it. I, mean, I saw it, one of those <laughs> uh, live and in person. I, I, I bet. 
So after 10 years, former USC running back Reggie Bush's disassociation from the university has come to an end. Relatively new athletics director Mike Bone said in a statement on Wednesday, when I was hired to represent the Trojan family as director of athletics, I committed to listening and learning before leading. Throughout this process, one of the consistent themes that emerged from my discussions was how much Reggie Bush means to our former players, USC alumni, and fans everywhere. I've enjoyed getting to know Reggie and so many of his teammates, and I'm pleased his disassociation has ended so that we can welcome him back to our family. I'm confident that Reggie will use his incredible platform and influential voice to support and empower all of our student-athletes. Statement from Reggie Bush, I've dreamed of this day for 10-plus years, and I'm excited to come home. Now, over the... Let's see. There was um, a rule that was adopted in 2017 by the NCAA that limits any mandated disassociation between an individual and a school to 10 years. His disassociation began June 10th, 2010, as part of sweeping sanctions that included a two-year postseason ban, 14 vacated victories, including the national championship in 2004, and the loss of, count them, 30 scholarships. Once the 10-year period is over, according to Committee on Infractions Procedures, the NCAA will no longer monitor or enforce the disassociation and will give schools the freedom to decide how to proceed, whether that's ending the disassociation or not, or extending it. The sanctions for Bush came in the wake of a four-year extra benefits investigation that determined the 2005 Heisman Trophy winner and family members while he was a student athlete accepted cash, travel expenses, and a home in the San Diego area where Bush's parents lived rent-free for more than a year (gasps) and with which they were provided $10,000 to furnish the house. And Reggie Bush had to return his Heisman Trophy. During the past 10 years, Bush has not been welcome on USC's campus and has not been involved with the Trojans program in any capacity. His name, stats, and accomplishments did appear throughout USC's most recent media guide, but asterisks were attached to his name to note that his participation was vacated because of an NCAA penalty. Such a ridiculous and overbearing penalty. I mean, I get rules are rules. I understand that, and you should follow them. Um, punish the people that gave the cash to his family. Don't bar him from well, they his... They didn't do anything illegal. The boosters? Disassoci- yeah, I mean, you disassociate them, but I mean, that's not really a... That's not a real penalty. We, we know that's a, the fact here in this state, so... I mean, what are you going to do? So you force a football player... Whose family no, 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 got no, no, no. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying they should have punished Bush. I'm just saying it's impossible for the NCAA to punish boosters. I, I'm not following. I, all I'm saying is just punishing Reggie Bush for a decade, not allowing oh, him to to be a part of anything involving Southern Cal is is just absurd. Absurd. Stupid. Well, I mean totally the NCAA you, yeah. though. They would argue that the punishment was not specifically of Reggie Bush. The punishment was for the university. Yeah, yeah but to Southern, 
They took the man's Heisman. That's one of the most ridiculous things ever. I mean, but the NCAA the, didn't. The Heisman Trust uh, did. That's dumb too. Whoever took it is is wrong and should give it back immediately and restore him to all rights and privileges of being a Heisman winner. You are a stand for Reggie Bush, aren't you? Yes. Don't forget, Richard, he was a saint and a good one. That's right. So that's what this is all about. I liked Reggie Bush in college, but, yeah, the fact that he was a saint, you know, I was quite happy to see him in black and gold during his time. His college career was better than his NFL career, right? Yeah, there's no question about that. That's true of a lot of, of, of players, though. That's true of a lot of Heisman Trophy winners lately. Jason White included. Yeah, I mean, I can li- I can probably list ten without, you know, batting an eyelash. Reggie Bush was in the NFL for a decade. How many thousand-yard rushing seasons do you think he had? Not a one. Nern? Two. And they were really? 1,086 and 1,006. So he barely eclipsed. Uh, one was uh, no, uh, they were Miami yeah, and Detroit. So in New Orleans, no way. His he high for Detroit. <laughs> yeah, I remember he that. Had yeah, a thousand yards rushing for Detroit too. Um, he did have seven hundred yards receiving in one year in New Orleans. So he rushed for five hundred right. and caught seven forty. That was his rookie year. Uh, that was the the Katrina year, the the year they yeah. came back. Yeah, um, he was fantastic in, in the passing game. He couldn't couldn't get the thing going on the ground, but they had to do so. It wasn't a problem. I, I mean, I'm glad that his disassociation is over. It seems like he ought to be able to go back on campus when they have reunions and, you know, celebrate with his teammates. I'm sure Southern Cal is happy to be able to leverage his stardom and advertise him as one of their own. Somebody broke rules big time, though, and Southern Cal, as a result of the time that Reggie Bush spent on their campus got punished in football terms into the Stone Age. If you think about it, Lane Kiffin's the head coach at Ole Miss because Reggie Bush got punished at Southern Cal. What a butterfly effect that is. Connect some dots there and you'll find it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's your college football fix. We'll go back to questions for each team in the SEC when we continue with you on Sports Talk Mississippi. Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. So, we walked through questions related to Florida and Georgia and Kentucky in the East. What is your question, biggest question surrounding M-I-Z-Z-O-U, and new head coach, Eli Drinkowitz. Is he still high-fiving people in the office for getting a three-star? Woo! If somebody, when I was working, where did you actually buy that gold sweater? Who comes on after you? Some, is it somebody that I actually care about? <laughs> hey, you wouldn't ask this uh, to him, but I do. I would like to know if he's a one-hit wonder. 
Because he has been head coach for one season at Appalachian State, and he took over a program and a team that was primed and prepared to win immediately. It would be like taking... And they did. And they did, to his credit. I mean, you've got to coach the guys that you are handed. Uh, But was that you? Or, Or was that the program that was handed to you? Can you replicate that kind of success at Missouri where you're going to not be as talented as half your division every single year, no matter what you do? That's a good question. Was Gus was still at Springdale when he was an assistant coach and offensive coordinator at Springdale High School, right? 06 to 09? Or had Gus left at that point? Malzahn's first year at Arkansas would have been 06. Okay, so he was the offensive coordinator that followed Gus Malzahn at Springdale. Imagine being I didn't those know that. high school players. Wow. Very different than my offensive coordinator, that's for sure. And then 10 and 11, quality control coach at Auburn. And then Arkansas State as a running backs coach. And then co-offensive coordinator at Arkansas State. So he followed Gus around for a while, right? Apparently so, yeah. When Malzahn went back to Auburn, Drinkwitz stayed on at Arkansas State under Brian Harson, And then Harson accepted the head coaching job at Boise State. And Drinkwitz went with him to Boise State. Spent a year as the tight ends coach, then a year as the offensive coordinator, and then he went to NC State. And we've talked about what the offense at NC State was like. They were better with him as the offensive coordinator. Yeah. I mean, Borky, I agree with you. I mean, there's only one year in terms of track record as a head coach, but he's got a pretty good offensive mind and has been around some pretty successful people as well. For sure. Um, In his three seasons at NC State, it's the only times, and they did it twice, where Dave Doran won nine games. Over under five years at Missouri for Drinkwitz. Boy, that's a good question because, I mean, it's not like Barry Odom was bad, right? He was going to bowl games, native son, but they cited declining ticket sales and and lack of next-level success for the reason why they fired him. So the only way Drinkwitz is staying there for, for five years plus is if he wins at a higher level than Odom did. And the question is, is that possible at Missouri? Can you win more than six, seven, eight games a year there? Because if not, he's not going to be there for five years. What's your question for South Carolina? So does the university pay for the moving company, or does that come out of your your severance pay? (laughs) How does that work? You are convinced Will Muschamp is done at South Carolina after this season. Prior to the outbreak of COVID-19, I was. Now I don't really know if if universities are going to have to be uh, a little more judicious with their buyout money. A little more judicious in their money, yeah. Yeah, This this thing could really go either way for South Carolina. I mean, I I know, hey, Dad, you think there's only one way it's going to go. 
Right. But if they beat Coastal Carolina, East Carolina, and Missouri at home to start the year 3-0, and and then they go to Kentucky, I think most of us agree that Kentucky is more talented than South Carolina, but I mean, you're not going to be shocked, surprised, shocked, if South Carolina beats Kentucky and Lexington in Week 4. He has recruited what... Pretty well there. I mean, not well enough to, to beat his rival or really compete nationally, but top 20-ish classes every year. I would be surprised if they went if they beat Kentucky. I tell you what, it's just it's hard to it's hard to get South Carolina to more than six wins when you look at their schedule. Right. You know who's calling plays there now, right? Mike Bobo. Mm. Oof. Doesn't inspire does a whole lot of confidence. confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, even if they start the year three and zero with wins over Coastal Carolina, East Carolina, and Missouri. Okay, maybe they get one out of Kentucky, Florida, and Tennessee. That's four. Beat Vanderbilt. That's five. Beat Wofford. That's six. Not gonna beat A and M. Not gonna beat Georgia. Not gonna beat LSU. Not gonna beat Clemson. Probably not gonna beat. I mean, I was I was just a little generous and gave them six. It's not happening. If if they start two and zero, but then lose to Missouri, it could get ugly. Because it could go from two and zero to two and five, yeah. Before they travel to Vanderbilt, yeah. and then could lose three of their last four. If they are two and five, here's a hot take for you: uh, Mike Bobo is coaching the game at Vanderbilt. <laughs> could very well happen. Yeah, that's that's giving it to an interim that you know is not getting the head job. Yep, that is a very yeah. easy thing for the athletic director. Is it? It's still Ray Tanner, isn't it? Um, yeah. You don't have to worry about him galvanizing the team or anything like that. You're good. What about Tennessee? What's the question? Are you back for real this time? Finally? I want to know if week two should be a measuring stick. Ooh, that's Is a that good Oklahoma? question. Yep. Got to go to Oklahoma in week two. It feels like that's a little unfair to call that a measuring stick game unless have, you believe that Tennessee is on the precipice of being a power in the SEC. It should be, though. If Tennessee is actually what people think Tennessee is, not around here. I feel like people around here have a pretty good gauge of what Tennessee football actually is. But if you are in year three at Tennessee, which is supposed to be, according to some, this national power, that should be a measuring stick game because if you're a national power going on the road to another one in year three of your new coach with the way he's recruited, that should be a measuring stick game for you. If it's not, then people need to reevaluate what they think about Tennessee football. They don't have to win, but they do have to play. They, they can't get run off the field either. They yeah. need to play a, a close game, maybe have a chance to win and just not come, and just come up a little short. I, I just think this season has eight and four written all over it for Tennessee. That's a fine season for them. And that 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 would be I think totally and, and eight I think four, eight maybe four, get a bowl win. Yeah, they're fine. And, and hey, Dad, I think that would allow them to continue to move in the direction that Tennessee fans want the program to move. I totally agree with that. 
They beat Charlotte, lose to Oklahoma, beat Furman, lose to Florida, beat Missouri, South Carolina, be four and two at the halfway mark, lose to Alabama, that's four and three, beat Arkansas five, beat Kentucky six, lose to Georgia. So you're six and four. And then beat Troy and Vanderbilt to get to eight and four. And if they can find an upset in there, then they're in, you know, really good shape. Call and me go crazy. Play the, I know, I'm just finishing that thought, Borky. I was going to say, then you go play the fourth best team out of the Big Ten in the Outback Bowl. Yeah, you can get, a, I mean, a nine-win season. Go beat Iowa again, or Northwestern. Uh, call me crazy. Is Kentucky the most important game for them on that schedule? Most important, not biggest, not biggest atmosphere, not best time slot, but the most important game for them on that schedule, Kentucky, at home. I mean, if things kind of go as chalk, it's the difference in being 7-5 and five and 8-4. and four. And that's probably the difference in progress and stalling? Maybe. I think the Florida game in Week 4 is pretty big also. Yeah, that's, that's every year, though. Sure. Vanderbilt, last team in the SEC East. I mean, what are Don't what care. questions you're going to ask about them? Let's go to the West on the other side of this timeout. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. It's like the NBA's got a little bit of a speed bump in their return and start to play on July 31st as some players are raising concern about whether or not they feel safe in the bubble environment. But uh, a good thing is they've already reached an agreement. I mean, that, that, this is the amazing difference between baseball and basketball right now. And, and the glaring difference... They haven't agreed to reach agreement yet on all the protocols, have they? I mean, the the agreement is in place on how they're going to return to play and, and what it's going to look like, but aren't they still ironing out the details on testing procedures and who gets into the bubble and when they get in and all of that stuff? I thought they've already agreed on all of that. I could be wrong. I, I That was the proposal that was sent... Um, to, from the owners to the players, and they agreed on it. And that included testing daily, but the non-invasive style of testing that you could have, what was it, up to three people in the bubble with you after the first round of the playoffs. I, I thought they ironed all of that out. Let's see, the most recent uh, tweets from... Adrian Wojnarowski, the NBA and NBA or NBPA are nearing completion on items needed to reach a final agreement on parameters of a return to play. Some players with hesitation have been discussing a number of issues on the return, including family concerns, COVID-19, social justice, and more. Hmm. I think Adam Silver is more diplomatic than I am, and the working relationship between the Players Association and the NBA is a positive one. If I were Adam Silver, I would be very, very, very close to saying, if you want to blow this thing up now, be my guest. 
we've got the terms to return all ironed out. It's on you. We don't play, it's your fault. Period. I have But a, I think he's probably more diplomatic than that. Yeah, a little bit. But I have a feeling that it, the biggest voices in the game will not let that happen. It's kind of like the inverse, again, the inverse of baseball. You have the sports leaders that are... And it helps that they've been guaranteed full salary. I mean, that really goes a long way. If only the Major League Baseball owners would do the same thing in good faith with their players to ensure the long-term health of their game. Instead, they're doing the opposite. Um, But every major player, except for Dame Lillard, but now he's all in because they're given a chance, is very outspoken and vocal. I want to play. I want the season to return. We are in lockstep on this. Let's go. So if there's a few players that, let's say, are not as influential that are that are hung up on return to play, they'll figure that out pretty quickly, I think. All right. That's just my I guess. To mention it, that out. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that because it was kind of newsworthy and relevant right now. Um, continue our football questions. Do that or save them for tomorrow for a nice long 21-hour tease, either way. Yeah, we haven't gotten into the West at all, so. Yeah, let, let's hold the West. Let's do that tomorrow. Good idea, Borky. Because we spread the East out over an hour. I mean, really probably more people where we are care about the West than the East, and no reason for us to try and squ- squeeze that into like eight minutes. That's the number for the C Spire text line if you would like to be a part of the conversation. Jason, question. Tennessee beats Oklahoma? No. Different Jason. This one from Columbus. With Matt Corral and Grant Tisdale at quarterback, would this new offensive coordinator use Plumlee and Ely in various formations on the field at the same time? I was thinking about that earlier. Because, and as you mentioned earlier in the show, Lane Kiffin had a Zoom call with some local media there and said that not having a spring has basically made the quarterback competition even. So, I mean, who knows what who they're going to use and who's going to start or, or whatever. But I do – I don't think it's an accident if you look at the guys that they have uh, recruited and given offers to in the style of quarterback that they are. Um, there's not that many John Rice Plumleys out there, but none of them really fit his mold. Uh, they're, they're true pro-style quarterbacks. Maybe I'm reading into that too much, but I think that does mean something. Exactly how would they use Plumley if Corral happens to win that job? Would they – do a more structured and sensical two-quarterback system where Corral is the predominant quarterback, but on certain downs you bring in Plumlee to run like a a read option where you have three guys in the backfield, all of which can burn you with the two running backs and him? Or do you use him in the slot? Do you ask him to change positions? I was thinking about that earlier today. It's funny we get that question. Uh, We won't know the answers, but I highly doubt that any coach in America, Lane Kiffin included, if John Rice Plumley doesn't win that job, they would just keep him on the sidelines as a backup. 
dude's too athletic to not get touches somewhere. You have to find a way to get Ely and Plumley on the field at the same time. They're, they're the best two playmakers. Got to got to find a way to do that. Just looking to see if there were any other things from Lane Kiffin's <clears throat> media availability that jumped out today. He did mention uh, speaking specifically to Elijah Moore. Uh, I found that yeah. interesting. Well, and said that Elijah Moore had actually reached out to him via text message on Saturday morning before that unity walk. Uh, he, they were walking in the same vicinity of each other, and after it was over, he invited him to come to his office and just talk and said they visited for about an hour. And said uh, Elijah Moore told him he was really excited to get back to football. You know it's been a long off season for Elijah wow, Moore. I couldn't imagine. Um, and he's he's really explosive too. All he's known for around the country is the the play, the urination simulation. Hey, Dad. Thank you. Ring Stay that bell. Um, but he could be an upper echelon college football receiver. He's got that kind of, especially out of the slot too, which is more his bread and butter. He's he's not going to be the guy that's going to go catch fade routes in the corner of the end zone. He doesn't have the body type. But as far as like the ability. Uh, to run good, clean routes and get open and have explosive plays. I mean, he's up there. He's really, really talented, and it's his fault, of course, but it's a shame that that's really what anybody knows him for is that urination simulation. Lane Kiffin was asked if he would tone down the offensive system because of the limited time. He said, I definitely think so, and this is first-year staffs versus everybody else. If this was still going on while I was still at FAU, there would not be a whole lot of concern with having to miss spring. With all the returning players and everything, I really wouldn't be worried about it. People think, well, if you miss spring, how can a guy play if you're returning players? A lot of times you have 15 to 20 guys out in the spring for surgeries, then guys have a great year the next year. Nobody remembers if they miss spring ball, but that's because they were already there. They knew the system and had seasons playing in the system. This is much different with the first-year staff there may have to be limits on the playbook. Hey, Dad, insert your Phil Longo joke. Just get open, guys. Chasing space. There you go. Let's see. I think that's all that really stood out from his uh, comments today. Yeah, I, thought, I thought it was kind of funny. The uh, He said it, parents hadn't really reached out to him, so he said, I guess they trust us with our plan because they haven't really asked uh, how they're going to be protected. I thought that was kind of funny. A couple of things today from Kendall Rogers. He put this on Twitter. The NCAA Division I Committee for Legislative Relief has given Division I baseball relief. It's good of them. And this is for the 2020-21 academic year. The 35-man roster cap has been lifted. There is no roster limitation for the upcoming season. The annual counter has increased from 27 to 32. I shouldn't know what that means, but I don't. And the 25% scholarship minimum has been eliminated for a year. So the rule where if you have a player on scholarship, they have to have at least a 25% scholarship, that has been eliminated for the upcoming season. It'll help these mid-majors that are borderline getting cut. 
Did you see Bowling Green was uh, making a comeback? Million five they raised in like two weeks. Yeah. Well done. Are they trying to do the same thing at Furman or not that I've seen? Unfortunately, no. We'll put a bow on the. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.